Hello and welcome to this morning's event towards an EU methane import standard, opportunities for global climate leadership ahead of COP28. My name is Dave Keating. I'm coming at you live from the Euractive studios in the heart of the EU quarter, and I'm going to be guiding us through today's discussions. Now, we're just three months away from COP28 in Dubai, and here in Brussels, there is, as usual, a lot of discussion about what the EU can do as a leader on climate action to spur global action. And those discussions aren't just about CO2 emissions. As methane emissions continue to rise despite numerous initiatives to curb them, attention is turning to how to change this trajectory. Now, right now, the EU's legislators are debating whether to pass the European Union's first legislation to reduce methane emissions EU-wide. One of the key issues for upcoming negotiations between the European Parliament and national governments will be the question of what the EU can do about methane emissions beyond its borders. The EU is the largest single market in the world and it has leveraged its buying power to pressure global action on a range of environmental issues, including CO2 emissions, deforestation, and biofuels, just to name a few. In less than a month, the EU will apply the world's first-ever carbon border import levy, the CBAM, to encourage more international efforts to lower emissions. So could something like this also be done with methane emissions? The EU imports over 90% of its oil and gas, and by establishing an EU methane import standard within the methane regulation, it could make a big difference. But there are complications, and there's many questions surrounding the feasibility, legality, and broader impact of such a standard. So today, we're going to discuss these implications with policymakers, NGOs, academics, and industry stakeholders to figure out how the EU can best tackle methane emissions abroad. Now, you will be able to ask your questions to the panelists using Slido. Uh, you can see the QR code popping up on your screen, or you can type in the hashtag, which is EUMIS, Methane Import Standard. And I will be putting your questions to the panelists later on. So to get us started, I'd like to turn the floor over to Lee Beck, Senior Director for Europe and the Middle East with the Clean Air Task Force, who's going to present CATF and Carbon Limits new reports on this issue. Lee? Yeah, thank you, Dave. Thank you so much um, to everyone for uh, joining us here for this really, really important discussion. It's an honor to be here. Um, thanks to Active for hosting us. Thanks to our partners on the panel for joining us, for discussing our um, proposals. And of course, special thanks to our very own Brandon Locke, who's also on the panel, who's been leading our work on methane here in Brussels. So I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Um, I think I have a, a couple of slides as well. Perfect, there they are. And so um, I was just asked to give a few opening remarks and what I would like to do is really go over what is methane? Why is it important to tackle? How has the EU shown leadership? How have we shown global leadership? And um, what is some of the outstanding problems or really also important overlooked problems that we need to solve and what are some of our proposed solutions. But first of all, um, to those of you who don't um, know the Clean Air Task Force, we are a global climate organization. Um, we were 
initially founded in the United States 25 years ago, but have since um, expanded globally. Um, we are focusing on a variety of clean energy solutions and um, effective uh, mitigation. We're particularly focused on overlooked solutions. Um, this includes carbon capture, nuclear fusion, clean energy infrastructure deployment, um, hydrogen, but of course methane. Methane is, was one of our first programs uh, founded over 20 years ago when we were one of the uh, first environmental groups to really call attention to the issue. We have a rooster of global experts working on the issue, not just in Europe, but also in the United States, the Middle East, uh, Latin America, Africa. And um, some of you might know us uh, from our work on um, really creating evidence on Europe's methane emissions through our oil and gas imaging campaign, where our methane hunters um, went to over 300 sites and really um, made visible the methane pollution across Europe's industrial sites. Um, so maybe let's go to the next slide and just really talk a little bit about what it is methane? Why does it matter for global climate action? So um, the bad news is methane emissions are still rising. For most of, most of you probably know, methane is a natural gas that we use to produce energy, for example, for heating our homes. Um, it is um, responsible for um, 0 0.5 degree of the 1.2 degree of warming we've already seen globally because of its um, its, its potency in, in um, accelerating global warming. So it's 80%, 80 times more um, heat, heat trapping than carbon dioxide over a 20 year time frame. And the good news, however, is well, um, methane emissions are still rising, as I said, so really sounding alarm. Um, it's, it's really, really important that we take action. And actually, Reducing methane emissions is the most important action that we can take in the near term to slow global warming. It can also be done relatively easily. As you can see on the slide, 80% of emissions can be el eliminated with existing technologies and ne at nearly half of or um, at no net cost. And the good news is also we are seeing um, global leadership on um, reducing methane, methane emissions. Next slide, please. And so the EU, of course, has been a leader. As um, some of you right, might remember, two years ago, the EU has helped really drive the global methane pledge at COP26 in Glasgow. Um, and since then, over 150 countries have signed up to um, commit to reducing 30% of methane emissions by 2030. And so the question really now is, how can that commitment from two years ago be turned into concrete policy action to accelerate concrete progress towards this goal? And one of the, and Dave, you already hinted at it, is of course the conversation in Brussels over um, a methane regulation, which is really a really pivotal addition to the EU's climate toolbox. And it also comes at a time where there's many of the EU's partners really working together, Canada, Nigeria, the United States, um, that have been moving to, to further tackle methane emissions and really recognizing it's important, but also following up with key policy steps. This is also right now, as we're speaking in the UK, um, conversations are also ongoing on tighter rules on leak detection and regulation and vending and flaring. So next slide, please. Um, one thing that is really, really important, and again, Dave already hinted at, at this, is the EU is a massive oil and gas importer. 90% of its gas and 97% uh, of its 
oil is imported, which also means that essentially the majority of the methane emissions that the EU as such is responsible for are emitted abroad. And so from, from the Clean Air Task Force's perspective, um, and what we'll also show in, in our findings from our report with carbon limits, it's really absolutely essential that um, the current discussion or the methane re regulation or discussion not only tackles methane emissions coming from oil and gas production in Europe, but also the emissions from the production of oil and gas that the EU imports. And so the solutions that we're proposing and that I think we're going to be discussing, and I'm really, really excited for the discussion today, is really an EU methane import standard. Um, and so how did we get here? I just want to give a little bit of an overview of how we got here and what we found as we were really thinking through how could this be designed. Um, we, we, we've been thinking about this for a couple of years and for a long time there was really this notion, can this even be done legally, technically? And so we took a closer look at these claims um, with a series of analyses to really clarify the steps that need to be taken to set up an import standard. Um, how could it operate? How could it be effectively verified? Earlier this year, we brought together over 30 experts from 15 organizations globally to kind of work together on a roadmap. And so what you see here on the slide is this roadmap. We think there could be two complementary import standards set up. One is a prescriptive standard that really regulates the practices and technologies for oil and gas producers abroad. And the other one is an intensity standard that represents the maximum level of acceptable emissions for imported gas to the EU. Most importantly, as we're doing our analysis and interviews and conversations, what we found is really um, the true success, of course, of an import standard depends on how is it implemented, how is it measured, how is it verified, which we're going to discuss today. And I think it's also really, really important, like what would a methane import standard deliver beyond climate benefits? And there's really, really important evidence. It's economic benefits, it's energy security benefits, which are really important in the current world, and also health benefits. So I think what we're, what we're really hoping to drive home is that as um, we're discussing the methane regulation and the methane import standard that you can see here are included in the European Parliament's position, um, that we really keep um, keep focusing and keep including this important proposal as the negotiation proceeds to the final agreement. This would be a strong stance for the EU to take ahead of COP28 and really double down on its global leadership. So with this, I am going to hand it back to Dave and I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Lee. So we're going to move on to the panel discussion now. We're going to start out with kind of the big picture, asking why a methane import standard is important, what kind of difference it can make on global level. And then we're going to talk more about the technical aspects of how this standard would work. Um, we're really going to be, as we start here, thinking about what kind of difference this would make, particularly with an eye to the upcoming COP28 discussions. Let me introduce the panelists now. We have with us Thomas Bredariol, who is Energy and Environmental Policy Analyst at the International Energy Agency, the IEA. 
We have Catherine Wolfram, a William F. Pounds Professor of Energy Economics at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We have Michaela Hull, Project Lead for the EU Green Deal at the energy think tank Agora Energiewende. And we have Brandon Locke, Europe Policy Manager for Methane at the Clean Air Task Force. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. And again, as I mentioned, you at home will be able to put your questions to the panelists. I should note that Thomas has to leave a bit early from the panel. So if you have a question specifically for Thomas and the IEA, if you can specify that on Slido, I can put them to him before he leaves. So Thomas, let's start with you. Um, I think you're well placed to give us the global perspective here. Globally, are we making progress on tackling the issue of methane emissions? And is there any hope for movement specifically on methane at the upcoming COP28 summit in Dubai? And there, at that summit, could the EU make a difference in that progress? Thank you, Dave. Uh, these are all very good questions. Let me take them one at a time. Uh, so we are certainly making progress on methane emissions. Uh, last year, we saw that satellite detected large leaks uh, went down by about 10%. Uh, flaring, gas flaring uh, is down by about 5%. And a lot of the new production came in countries that have a low methane intensity. So they're emitting uh, not too much methane for each unit of oil and gas they produce. But this progress has been painstakingly slow. Um, and when we just saw uh, the slide uh, on, on the screen showing that methane emissions and methane concentrations in the atmosphere are still increasing, uh, likely partly due to an increase in fossil fuel production and in methane emissions from oil, gas and coal production. So we, we really need a step change to keep our climate goals uh, alive. Now, uh, when we look at COP28, this would be certainly a very important opportunity uh, for to, to push action in this sense. It could be a bit of a watershed moment for the oil and gas industry, an opportunity uh, for it to show that it wants to contribute to the solution and, and not only be part of the problem. Um, and I, there are many people uh, from, from the industry and, and from other parts, uh, from other stakeholders that are working to, to make this happen. Uh, we have been hearing a lot about the oil and gas methane partnership 2.0 and, and efforts to add more uh, companies to the list that is you know, committed to measuring methane emissions uh, in a, a robust way. Uh, unfortunately, this list hasn't been growing too much in, in the last couple of months, but hopefully we'll see more uh, until COP28 or at least perhaps at COP. Um, similarly, uh, the US launched uh, the methane finance sprint a few months ago in, in the major economies forum. And the idea there is to mobilize 200 million US dollars uh, by COP28 from, from governments and from philanthropies uh, to drive and spur action uh, on methane abatement. Now, um, we, we, we made a detailed study this year looking at how much uh, we would need to spend to put the oil and gas, the methane emissions from the oil and gas industry uh, on, on track for net zero emissions uh, by 2050 scenario. And the number we, we got to is about 75 billion US dollars. Now, 
uh, granted, most of that should come from the in industry. A lot of that can be mobilized through policy and regulation and should be. But we also identified a gap of about uh, 20 million billion US dollars, uh, which would be needed in countries uh, that have a low income or middle low income to drive uh, abatement measures that are costly and that will be needed to be implemented by companies that are either smaller companies or national oil companies that might not have uh, the funds available or the capacity to do their, that on their own. So we're talking here at a very different scale, right? 200 million and 20 billion, uh, it's multiple orders of magnitude. So, I mean, certainly it, it could be a step, it, it will be a step in the right direction. And hopefully that will ha uh, help identify important projects and, and drive abatement. But we will need much more to happen uh, by COP28 for this to be really a pivotal moment for the industry. And the EU can certainly contribute. Um, we have been, um, this. there is this proposal from the European Commission to regulate methane emissions uh, that is uh, ongoing and being discussed now for, for a couple of years. And it would certainly be very welcome. It would give an important signal. We, we heard also that the EU has been leading uh, action internationally on methane abatement. It would certainly uh, be a very strong signal that it uh, had a clear position on what it would be doing uh, internally, but also what it could be and what would be even more impactful, how it would deal with emissions from its supply chain, from imports of oil and gas. Um, we have seen from its engagement strategy uh, this idea of uh, you collect methane, we will buy the gas. That is that can be a, a powerful mechanism. Uh, within the, the methane proposal, there is uh, some language about bringing more transparency to emissions from imported oil and gas. That will also be very important. And hopefully in the future, we will see you know strong uh, action by the EU to take care of emissions both uh, domestically and from its supply chain. That might even spur other countries and, and other uh, importers like Japan, Korea, and, and who knows, maybe even others to also take similar action. And that could be a very powerful incentive to drive markets uh, internationally and uh, abatement measures in various uh, countries. I mean, not only uh, maybe some of the main producers that are already thinking about that, like the US, but also in countries like uh, Algeria or Trinidad or, you know, some of the main gas producers and, and that are have the European Union as it's one of its uh, destinations and would be more than uh, would have a greater incentive to take action. Idea that this, it's an interesting idea that this could actually spur other uh, developed economies to have their own import standard. Maybe we can come back to that a bit later. Catherine, um, so Thomas was really setting the scene there for how important this is as an issue, um, but also how you know there have been a lot of efforts and urging to tackle this issue for many years. Um, it remains a challenge. So tell us, why does methane remain such an important issue to tackle? And what do you think could make a difference globally? Sure. Um, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for including me on this panel. And also thanks so much to Clean Air Task Force and Carbon Limits for a, a great report. Um, long been a fan of Clean Air Task Force and, and their work on so many topics and methane is is um, true to form for them. 
Um, so to answer Dave's question, I think there are a couple of reasons why it's so important to tackle methane emissions in the oil and gas sector. First of all, as Lee mentioned, there's lots of room to make progress in this sector and, and to make quick progress. So for instance, people talk about hard to abate sectors like cement and iron and steel, where we're still working out the appropriate technologies to abate emissions. Oil and gas for methane emissions are, are really on the opposite end of the spectrum. These are the, the easy to abate technology or easy to abate sectors. As Lee indicated, the technologists have, have done their work, the, the technologies exist to abate a, a tremendous amount of emissions in these sectors already. And so it's really up to kind of economists and policymakers to think about how to get the incentives and the economics right so that the technologies that are already there are adopted. The second reason I think it's important to make progress here is that methane could be, particularly methane in the oil and gas sector, could be really a good way to take uh, baby steps towards broader multilateral climate alignment. So what, what do I have in mind exactly? We've been talking so far about the EU implementing a intensity standard, but I believe that the seeds are already there for the U.S. to do something similar. So, for instance, in the Inflation Reduction Act, the EU, sorry, the U.S. is essentially implementing an intensity standard and has a um, has a methane fee for companies that don't comply with the intensity standard. So that's something that it's doing for its own producers. But it, it would be, um, you know, very easy for the U.S. to go one step further and implement an intensity standard for imports, much the same way that the Clean Air Task Force is recommending for the EU. So I think it, it's really, you know, there have been some tensions between the U.S. and the EU around the Inflation Reduction Act and around the subsidy-based approach that the U.S. is taking for most of the, the sectors. But for methane and methane in the oil and gas sector specifically, this is really an area where the, the U.S. and the EU are aligned. So if the EU could take the steps that the Clean Air Task Force so nicely lays out, they will be really nicely aligned with the U.S. and can hopefully use that as a way to, to do two things. One is build a coalition of countries interested in purchasing clean methane and, and really kind of provide the incentives for methane exporters to achieve the, the intensity standard that are embedded in these policies. But secondly, and, and I think, you know, potentially even more importantly, we can use that type of multilateral alignment as really a stepping stone towards broader cooperation. Um, so this is something that, together with some co-authors from, from both the European Union and the U.S., we've outlined in, in a policy brief um, put out by the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Um, but really making, you know, a lot of the same points as the Clean Air Task Force Carbon Limits Report, that this is, this is the easy to abate sector and important to um, get the incentives right to reduce emissions here. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. I should note we're especially grateful to Catherine for joining us this morning because you're connecting from the U.S. and it's the middle of the night there. So we're very <laughs> grateful for, for your participation this morning, our morning. 
Um, Mikaela, let's turn to you next. So I mentioned that this isn't um, something that comes without complications. This uh, is, is logistically a bit tricky. Um, tell me a little bit from your perspective what difference you think it can make globally to have this standard and what are the concerns that have been expressed about having such a standard? Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, uh, the two previous speakers already uh, hinted at it. I mean, the EU sees itself as a regulatory powerhouse. It, this was just repeated again in, uh, for example, in our new Green Deal Vice President's mission letter, right? That this kind of EU playing a role in the global arena. Uh, and uh, Thomas also alluded to it, or the Catherine with the US-EU talks. So it would definitely make a difference as to your question uh, globally if the EU, um, you know, starts to get serious about tackling uh, the, impo uh, the imported part. Uh, the second part of your question, what are the concerns expressed around that idea, if I recall collect correctly at the time when the Commission proposed the methane regulation, um, which was before the Russian invasion also, uh, the fear was that, okay, um, it might be too prescriptive uh, and sending a signal of mistrust to the other actors on methane. So we all signed, or not all, but many signed the Global Methane Pledge, and this might be going too far at this stage. I have to say, was never convinced by this kind of logic because, uh, David, in your intro, you, uh, you alluded to the carbon border adjustment mechanism um, where we are doing exactly this. Um, and uh, as for energy security reasons, which maybe become, became more, you know, of an issue since uh, the Russian supply was cut, um, a recent Agora study found that uh, without any disruptions, uh, we can halve our fossil gas consumption by 2030. So this also puts us in a much different position compared to today. Um, yeah. And then uh, one point I wanted to make why methane is important, not in itself, but also in relation to other policy files. Um, we are all aware of that we're talking a lot about hydrogen in the Brussels arena, but also globally and that the EU intends to import also a lot of hydrogen from other places in the world. Um, we also know that fossil-based hydrogen needs to become very clean because otherwise fugitive emissions and, uh, you know, the storage can quickly mess up the GHG balance uh, of this product. Um, and by having strong criteria on what has to be done on blue hydrogen, this can influence other important discussions and debates that are ongoing at the moment. Uh, there are preparations for a global ISO standard on blue hydrogen where it could inform the discussion. And also since we are expecting that there will also be public money and also private money massively flowing into these hydrogen projects we feel that uh, you know clear clear instructions and a clear standard can really help 
orienting the financial flows to the right points. I think I stop here. Might come back with other things. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Michaela. So, Brandon, you're working on this issue intensively here in Brussels. Um, walk us through what the policy lessons are of the report. Um, what do we know, based on the report, about how an EU standard could make a difference globally? Thanks, Dave, and thanks to everyone for joining this morning. It's really exciting to see so much energy and attention for such an important issue. And I also want to give a special thanks to Catherine for joining um, from the US. Um, now, to your question, maybe I can start with the second part first, because I think the why is just as important as the what. Um, and you know, we've already heard how important it is to reduce methane emissions uh, globally, but I think it's just worth underlining that as you know, the world's largest importer of oil and gas, um, you know, we're talking about emissions that the EU is responsible for creating outside its borders. And if the EU really wants to maintain its global leadership and its commitment to the Global Methane Pledge, um, you know, we really need to find a solution to, to cut these emissions. Um, to the, the, policy, um, the policy lessons from this report, I, I think there's a few, and some of them have already been touched on, so I, I don't want to elaborate too much on those. But I think one of the first things we really tried to do with this report was show that it is uh, an import standard is not only uh, legal, but feasible and implementable. Um, and one of the things that we did was commission a, a legal analysis uh, to accompany this report um, that really looked closely at different precedent approaches uh, to setting import standards um, from other EU frameworks, uh, as well as the rules of the WTO um, and the climate change regime under the UNFCCC, and all of these, uh, all of these regimes, um, under all of these regimes, an import standard is is legal. And as you mentioned, Dave, in your opening remarks, there's multiple EU precedents uh, where this has already been done, um, from deforestation to to illegal fishing. Um, a second really important lesson, I think, from this report is that this is going to be a process. Um, but that we can start this process today. And I'll give you one specific example. Uh, we, we set out two different types of import standards in the report. Um, as, as Lee mentioned, the prescriptive standard uh, that sets out rules and best practices, and then the intensity standard that puts a limit on, on, on maximum emissions per, per unit of oil and gas. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later. Um, but I think that it's important to, to note that um, you know, when we set up uh, a prescriptive standard, for example, um, there are many ways we could do this. And the stakeholders uh, that helped us put together this report were really also thinking about how do we make this as, as feasible and implementable as possible. Um, and one of the ideas uh, that came up was that, you know, when we create the criteria, what we would call the equivalence criteria that determine uh, whether or not a country would meet the standard, um, this can be built iter iteratively, for example. Um, so a certain level of alignment may be sufficient uh, to start the standard and this criteria can increase every year. Um, a second thing to note is that, you know, there will be uh, an implementation uh, delay uh, and in the parliament's position, this, the standard wouldn't even go into effect until the 1st of January, 2026 um, to give partners you know, ample time to really start to think about how are we going to adjust our, our policies and practices um, to meet these standards. And so if we start this, uh, if we start this delay now, um, you know, we're going to have a standard uh, much closer in, in the future. 
Um, but I think the, 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 the core point here is that, you know, we tried to illustrate there are a range of options to customize these options to make them as implementable as possible and as feasible as possible. And I think the third policy lesson um, and the final policy lesson is has been touched upon uh, already um, by Thomas. Uh, uh, I think this is really an opportunity uh, for global cooperation and, and multilateral cooperation. And I think, you know, when we talk about uh, almost any issue when it comes to climate change, but especially methane emissions, this is really a global challenge. Um, and, and we're not going uh, to, to make progress without looking at this holistically. And I think, you know, a methane import standard is just a major opportunity, uh, not only to level the playing field between local producers and foreign producers that export to the EU, but also to really foster some of these uh, to foster some of these dialogues, constructed dialogues with other importers, uh, regulators, um, to, to have some alignment uh, on verification processes um, that are going to be so crucial in the future to make sure we're actually bringing these emissions down. And I think we've already seen, um, you know, some of this important type of cooperation uh, in very recently, um, you know, the the, the, was the Japan-led clean initiative um, that is going to be tracking methane intensity of LNG pro uh, projects. And, and, you know, this is a very welcome uh, development. And we think that a methane import standard could really help stretch this kind of collective ambition further um, and really build this backbone for, for uh, a system of, you know, measurement and verification of, of collected data. So I think to summarize, um, the, 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 the key lessons are this is, this is legal, uh, uh, this, is, this is feasible, um, it's a huge opportunity for, for global cooperation and multilateral cooperation. And we can start this today. We can start this right now. I'll stop there. Thanks. So you mentioned the, the, kind of the global framework here. We do have one question that's come in for Tomas. So this question is from Emils Lagsdin. Um, so the question is, shouldn't the priority be to establish a consistent and verifiable international measuring, reporting, and verification, MRV, framework first before contemplating an import standard. Tomas, do you think there's a case to be made that an MRV, an internationally recognized MRV needs to be in place before the EU could have an import standard? No, I don't think so, but it is a very good question. Uh, the reason I don't think so is because there are multiple avenues to make this work, and one of them is having uh, regulatory equivalency. So you could have a system where if you know that in a country they require leak detection and repair uh, surveys, say, every, every three months, then these would qualify uh, to, to export or to receive a price premium or you know, whatever the, uh, the measure is then that can be implemented without a specific uh, MRV uh, standard. That said, uh, if, uh, I mean, an, an MRV standard could certainly be very helpful uh, for this. And I think there, there's already one out there, the Oil and Gas Methane Partnership 2.0, led by the United Nations Environment Program, is uh, a very uh, robust framework that is looking exactly to provide a means for the oil and gas industry uh, to reach highest level of uh, methane uh, measurement, monitoring, uh, reporting, and uh, to a certain extent, uh, verification. So I think we already have a good reference. Uh, there is always a space 
to improve, uh, to have perhaps uh, alternative or complementary systems, and that could be helpful in discussion of you know methane import standard. But there's no need to wait for that specifically. We can start using what is available while improving on it, and we can uh, use different types of mechanisms that don't depend specifically on an MRV uh, framework to make this happen. Brandon, let me get you to respond to this as well. What would be your answer to somebody saying we need an international MRV in place before the EU could have an import standard? Thanks for the question. So this is actually um, something that we've thought about in the report as well. And uh, having an international MRV framework, as Thomas said, is, is, is absolutely essential and we need to work towards this. We think that when we're looking at uh, how we would set up an intensity standard, there are ways um, to already uh, start to implement this um, before you have a, a global standard. And one of the things we recommend in the report is for the commission to set up uh, default emissions factors, for example, for every segment of the value chain. Uh, and this would allow us um, to create a benchmarking exercise uh, for what is the estimated emissions um, for, for every part of the value chain and create an assessment of uh, the methane intensity, um, uh, you know, even before we can get uh, the, 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 the absolute best and most reliable data uh, on, on, on emissions. So I think it is important that we move towards uh, a, a very clear uh, MRV framework. And, and this is something that needs to be set up as part of a, a methane intensity standard. But at the same time, um, you know, there are ways that we can already start this process um, before, before we get there. Great, so let's take a break now. We have some video remarks from the MEP Jutta Paulus, German MEP. Let's take a quick break. Now we're going to have uh, some pre-prepared video remarks from Jutta Paulus. In May this year, the European Parliament has adopted with a huge majority our position on the methane regulation. And one of the most important points is that we as Parliament want that imports to be included in the EU methane regulation. Why is this? First of all, we need a level playing field. So our domestic oil and gas and coal companies should not have a competition against those abroad that don't have to act on methane emissions. Secondly, as we import more than 90% of our fossil fuels, okay, coal only 40%, it is vitally necessary that the major part, the lion's share of methane emissions that come with our consumption of oil and gas are actually included in the regulation. And how do we want to achieve this? We want foreign companies outside the EU to adhere to the same standards on leak detection and repair, on venting and flaring, and also on monitoring, reporting, verification of the emissions. Are we alone in this? We're not. We already have legislation in Norway, one of our major oil and gas supplier. We have legislation in Nigeria, certainly not a country where the average European would think very strong standards exist already. We will have similar um, provisions also in the United States of America, where the Environmental Protection Agency is currently working on standards. So already a lot of our importing of countries we're importing from 
are actually active on methane emissions. But most importantly, we as European Union have brought forward together with the United States and other actors at the climate conference in Glasgow, the Global Methane Pledge. We should hold true to our word. We should be true to our promise to decrease methane emissions. Of course, not only from the energy sector, but the energy sector is a very good place to start because every molecule that does not escape from a leaky pipeline or an old valve can be sold. Then why is the industry not doing it anyway? The return on investment is much better if you explore new resources. So why bother with leaky equipment, with outdated valves, with old stuff which could have been replaced ages ago? Therefore, we need regulation here. And regulation will bring innovation, as we have seen in numerous examples. I'm old enough to remember that European cars could never run with unleaded gasoline. Well, the truth is, we, our cars still run with fossil gasoline, but we banned lead years ago, decades ago, and our children were able to grow up in an environment that is free from this neurotoxic element. We can do the same on methane. I will work for it. So there we have it from German Green MEP Jutta Paulus. And again, as we talked about before, in the Parliament's version of this legislation, we do have this import standard. Where this is facing a lot of skepticism is from national governments who, among other things, are worried about the technical challenges of such an import standard. And Essentially, to boil down the concerns, it would be that maybe this is more complicated than it's worth. So let's dive into that now. Let's dive into the technical specifications of exactly how this would work uh, and also the different ways you could do it. Obviously, there's, there's many different ways you could organize um, this standard. Um, before we go into that, though, I did want to go to Catherine, because you also wanted to comment on this MRV being a prerequisite for having an import standard, right? Yeah, thanks, Dave. I think, as other panelists have mentioned, we can look to the work that the EU has done on the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, CBAM, for um, important kind of um, analogies to, to what's being proposed here for methane. And I think there are two lessons from the CBAM. One is that as Brandon proposed, this, this idea of delaying, of kind of announcing the policy, but um, targeting its implementation for several years hence, that that, that, that can really work. Um, and so that, that's being proposed for the CBAM, A, as a way to kind of nail down the measurement. So, you know, exactly analogously here, we can announce the policy without um, having the, the details of the, the QMRV standard um, fleshed out, but, but use the time before implementation to really, to really work those out. And I think as the CBAM shows, the other thing that, that pre-announcing the policy and, and um, 
kind of leaving time before it's implementing does is it gives exporters a chance to basically react to that. And, and again, looking to the CBAM for uh, the analogy, we've seen how that's working. So, you know, just recently it was announced that Vietnam is, is discussing carbon pricing themselves. So I think it, it's really important to, to have this kind of time lag and, and give, um, give a, time to adopt to the or to to develop measurement standards but but be give uh exporters time to adapt to, to the new policy environment i think the second lesson from the the cbam is that on measurement you can um you know set a, a high baseline and then allow individual exporters to prove if they're different uh, if there are lower emissions basically to to kind of prove out um, from that default. So I think we should definitely look to the, the CBAM for um, kind of how these things might work and, and the effects that they will have. Great. So let's uh, talk first about some of those concerns that I mentioned from national governments. Uh, Mikaela, could you walk us through what are the biggest concerns you're hearing right now from national governments about this prospect? Well, yeah, I mean, national governments, obviously, uh, when they look at the text that comes from the commission, they look at, okay, what do I have to do with it? So that's the reflex. Um, uh, and anything that, you know, takes away a bit of a competence from them or, you know, needs new resources is obviously always carefully scrutinized. But I think what's really helpful in this in this discussion is, um, to look a bit beyond, um, because as far as we can tell, there is a demand for clear information on, on the gas supply chain from corporate actors. We know that the PLATS, S&P, commodity service, for example, they want to really, they offer services and want to expand that to inform um, companies on the methane in the value chain for example. Um, and we have, for example, also the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, which is uh, 12 CEOs across the globe uh, that set for themselves already uh, strong verification criteria and including even an intensity standard. And I'm not as much expert on methane as the other people on the panel, but from what I can tell, this has worked very well for them. And interestingly, also for the EU, these CEOs come from across the globe. So um, just to make again the point, there are efforts from the corporates, there is interest from actors in the value chain to have standards. Uh, and I think that's an important part that also someone looking from a national administration should keep in mind. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's also worth pointing out that this is always the dynamic we have in EU lawmaking, that the European Parliament wants to be more ambitious. The European Council, made up of the national governments, always wants to be less ambitious because they're the ones who actually have to enforce the laws. The Parliament just gets to pass them. Um, so let's talk about the different options in the report. Brandon, the report lays out two types of standards, a prescriptive standard and an intensity standard. What are the differences between those two types? 
Thanks for the question, Dave. Um, so just to summarize, the prescriptive standard, as I uh, was mentioning earlier, this is essentially extending um, the domestic legal framework to cover exports. So what this would mean uh, is that the rules that the EU is developing on things like leak detection and repair or banning routine venting and flaring, um, you know, these would be applied uh, to external, uh, to, to external uh, stakeholders and, and exporters. And what we've actually seen, um, and I think this is really important to mention, is that you know, many partners are already moving in this direction on, on things like leak detection and repair. Uh, Canada is moving towards monthly uh, inspection frequencies. Even Ni Nigeria is moving towards frequencies four times a year. So many of these countries are already moving in, in this direction. Um, and what the prescriptive standard would do is say, uh, all of the exporters um, essentially need to meet an equivalence criteria. They need to have rules in place uh, that would effectively uh, create the same uh, level of intensity uh, as the EU rules. Um, and this would be a, a process that the commission would have to uh, set out very clearly, of course, um, what are the criteria, um, uh, you know, what, are, what are the steps that uh, need to be uh, taken by exporters to ensure that they're meeting this criteria uh, and then, of course, creating a verification system uh, with third-party verifiers, uh, which would be able to ensure that these uh, these standards are actually being met. Um, so this this uh, prescriptive standard uh, is is really something that can be implemented uh, implemented now. As I said, it's uh, it is a way for the EU to help encourage partners um, to take some of these really easy, low-hanging fruit steps to tackle methane emissions, um, and it's something that partners are already doing. Um, the intensity standard, uh, this is a, is a slightly more complex. This is really setting up a target um, that would regulate the maximum level of emissions intensity uh, for every unit of oil and gas. Um, and this uh, uh, is, is something that the parliament has also uh, proposed um, domestically in Article 13 of the legislation uh, for uh, a methane intensity target of 0.2%, which is actually um, an, an industry uh, agreed target uh, for, for gas. Uh, and it's something that many producers are, are already claiming to meet or say that they can meet by 2025. Um, so this is completely achievable uh, and is something that could help drastically uh, bring down uh, emissions from a very quantifiable perspective. Um, now, as I mentioned before, just in the, in the response to that question, there are a few steps that need to be set up um, to implement this intensity standard. Of course, uh, measuring and verifying the methane intensity is probably the most important. And, and so having a verification process and clear MRV is absolutely essential. And that's where setting up third-party verifiers is going to be even more important. And, and these third-party verifiers, um, as, as outlined in the report, um, can also rely on data from other trusted sources to help cross-reference uh, to help cross-reference um, reported methane intensity levels. Um, there are a, a very wide array, array of, of measuring methane intensity um, uh, from from using things like OGI imaging to satellite and aerial technology, um, and there are a lot of ways that we can uh, use all of this data uh, together and, and, and ensure that we are. Uh, actu accurately um, measuring methane intensity for every level of the value chain. Um, the the methane intensity uh, standard, as I as I also mentioned before, you know, really does rely on that benchmarking exercise uh, to determine the default emissions factors. In the case that that data can't be provided, 
Um, and that's something that, uh, of course, the, the, the European Commission would, would have to do as well. Um, so, so those are the, the, the two standards. Um, and I think it's also just important to mention that, you know, that in our report, we don't necessarily take a, a preference between these two. They really are complementary. Um, and uh, we really do hope that both of these can, can actually make it into the, the methane regulation um, because they complement each other uh, and they both uh, would have a very demonstrable impact on reducing methane emissions globally. So, Brandon, one of the concerns from national governments is that this might be complicated to enforce. You mentioned the case in which there might not be available data. So on a practical level, how would you actually enforce either of these uh, models? That's a good question. Um, so at a, at a practical level, um, you know, what we envision is a setup where uh, competent authorities would be that member state competent authorities would really be relying on uh, the, the European Commission verifying body and third party verifiers um, to inform whether or not, um, you know, the, 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 the methane, uh, the gas or oil that's being imported um, meets a standard. Um, so the first thing I think to, to underline is that we do envision, um, you know, a, a relatively uh, low level of burden on member state competent authorities. Um, they would essentially uh, be relying very heavily on uh, this verification process uh, and the verifying body to ensure that methane is, is being, um, is, 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 is the, sorry, that the gas and oil is compliant with the, with the import standard. Um, the second step that the report recommends when it comes to enforcement of an import standard is, of course, setting up some kind of incentive mechanism. Um, uh, it could, there's a few different options laid out in the report, uh, ranging from a, a fee or penalty structure uh, to uh, priority access um, on the, the gas market that would essentially incentivize uh, exporters um, to, to meet this standard uh, and, not, and not have to face this, this fee. And as Catherine mentioned before, I think that uh, the, the, the link between uh, incentivizing companies to prove uh, their data, uh, to prove that their emissions is in fact lower then a default benchmark or default emissions factor could be uh, a very powerful incentive to help uh, to help uh, you know really create a, a, a willingness from exporters to try and find some of this data that may not be available uh, right now, and that's something that the U.S. Uh, is doing, as you mentioned, um, with their fifteen hundred dollar uh, methane fee. Uh, the the general idea is that if a company uh, thinks that it is uh, actually doing better, it's, its methane intensity level is lower, then that, that uh, emissions factor, they can essentially provide that data and, and avoid basing that fee. Um, so I think there's a, there's a few different ways that we can get around uh, some of these, uh, these, these, these initial uh, challenges that have been put forth around, you know, how are we going to enforce this? Um, is it actually going to be implementable? Michaela, how complicated do you think enforcement would be on this? And would you need to have some kind of third party independent verifier to make sure that what's being reported is accurate? Um, okay. Yes, it was always our view that uh, a solid third party verification has to be part of the, of the, of the process. And uh, to build up on, on what David explained, um, 
you could start off with, uh, you know, working with emission factors, uh, like also we've done actually in the CBAM, you know, you start easy, but um, especially with methane, where you cannot really transfer knowledge from one site to another, we believe also that, uh, you know, source specific, site specific has to come pretty soon. Um, yeah. But but basically, I mean, the commission proposal, as far as I remember, was uh, on your question on monitoring verification, relatively solid and uh, reflecting a little bit the uh, oil and gas methane protocol uh, requirements. So um, if that were to find its way in the final outcome, that that would be good for that bit, I guess. Catherine, what's your view on enforcement? Would it be complicated? Uh, how, what's, what would be the best way to go forward on enforcement? Yeah, sure. I, I just would like to buttress things that have already been said. Um, you know, let's think about what it means to enforce here. Ultimately, it means measuring how much methane is, is being emitted. And one thing to keep in mind is that new technologies are really transforming our abilities to measure the, the methane emissions. Um, so satellites, you know, the, the Environmental Defense Fund, for instance, is, is putting up a methane, specific methane sat. Um, and so I think, you know, it's not something that would require, um, would require third-party verifiers to get access to remote Russian fields. It, it's something that we can, we can potentially measure from, from satellites. I think the second point I would make is that if you look at the table, um, or sorry, the figure that, that Lee put up in her initial presentation, you'll see that th there's really wide variation across exporters in terms of, of their methane intensity. So, Algeria, Algeria wasn't even the, the, the worst. There was a really long bar, which was uh, exports from Libya that are arriving by pipeline. But Algeria, which is second worst, is, is more than five times as um, intensive, has, has more than five times as much emissions per unit of oil and gas as, as Qatar. So, you know, I think that, that we don't need to be thinking about kind of measurement that's that's super, super precise down to the, the third decimal or something, but we just need to be think about incentivizing methane or incentivizing Algeria to, to reduce methane emissions by, um, you know, factors of, of five. So I think those things make it easier to think about, um, about enforcement, both the, the technological innovations from satellites and, and the fact that you know, we're, we're really thinking about, yeah, not precision measurement, but, but um, yeah. Yeah, that a lot of those technological advancements, particularly with satellite surveillance, would make this easier than it might have been, uh, you know, a decade ago. Um, let's go to some questions from the audience. Again, you can ask your questions to the panelists using the Slido hashtag EUMIS. Um, so the first question we have here is about another concern from member states, which is uh, a very big concern at the moment with the war in Ukraine, and that is energy security. Uh, member states, national governments are a bit jittery at the moment about anything that might have a negative impact on energy security. 
given that, yes, the EU made it through last winter, okay, uh, but there are concerns about this upcoming winter, uh, and there are concerns about the unpredictability of the market right now. So Emma Kempf asks, and I'll put this question to Brandon first, is there a risk to the EU security of supply by applying the same requirements to imports of natural gas and oil? In other words, uh, if you make this requirement or the standard too onerous, uh, does that actually put the EU at risk? That's that's a great question, and it's a it's a concern that we've heard uh, many times, actually. And I think one of the first and most important things to remember when we're talking about implementing an import standard um, is that if there is compliance with this standard, we will actually see a very significant increase of availability of, of gas uh, that is being captured as opposed to being leaked. Um, the, the IEA estimated uh, in, in, in 2021 that over 90 billion euros of gas uh, were wasted um, due to uh, leaks and uh, uh, fugitive emissions coming from these systems. So, you know, just this idea that if we actually start to tackle methane emissions, this is directly linked to improving energy security. Um, and we're, we're actually working on, on, on calculating some of these um, numbers. So stay tuned for this, uh, you know, the next development of this debate of just how much uh, gas this could uh, actually help uh, save. Um, the second point I think is really important to, to mention when we talk about you know, energy security and the gas market uh, is that, as I mentioned before, you know, this, this standard would not go into uh, effect for, for, for some years. And you know, we do expect the market to look very differently uh, in 2026-27 than, than it does in the immediate future. Um, when we'll be expecting a significant increase of, of, of LNG imports and, and you know, uh, other, other uh, supplies with other producers coming, coming on the market. So that's also something that's important um, to take into account. Um, and I think the, the, the last thing, you know, when it comes to energy security, and this is something I, I mentioned in, in my first remarks, is that um, you know, there is an opportunity, uh, I think, for uh, major importers um, to move collectively on an import standard similar to the, the clean initiative um, agreed by, by Japan, Korea, um, the US, EU and Australia. And uh, you know, we do think that you know, collectively, collective uh, movement and collective multilateral cooperation on this is also a way uh, to assuage perhaps some of those uh, fears that we may be losing out to, to other competitors. So there is a way to think about this holistically. Um, but just to summarize uh, uh, you know, the first point, you know, we're going to be increasing the supply of, of gas uh, to the market by actually tackling methane emissions. Um, and we do expect the, the market to, to look very differently uh, later on in, in the future. Yeah, that's a good point that a large part of energy security is energy efficiency. And that's actually what methane savings um, can deliver. Um, Michaela, you, you also know that the energy security is a big concern at the moment. How would you respond to this fear that uh, a standard could uh, jeopardize EU energy security? Um, yeah, I, uh, I, thanks for the question. I, I, I hinted at it in my intro remarks that uh, this, this concern has come up stronger since uh, the methane regulation was adopted. But um, I would, uh, I mean, Brendan, perfectly explained to it there's a lot of waste and even despite super high prices last year um, 
we didn't see any significant measures to, you know, <laughs> reduce that waste in order to increase the supply. So, which uh, which means that uh, some some more stringent measures might be needed. I also said that. Uh, we will be reducing our fossil gas use a lot. We've seen what is possible over the past year. Uh, much more is, as we have showed. Um, and uh, yeah, and as Brendan already explained, uh, we actually gain also a little bit. So the picture is not, uh, you know, you have to see the picture evolving and the gas market evolving. Um, but I have to admit, it's not that we have done uh, or anyone, as far as I can know, like a real assessment on you know um on the energy security implications that i have to say it's not that agro has done work on that so the next question let's go to the next question that's come in this is a very interesting question um catherine i'll put it to you the question is from cato sanford uh, is it possible that methane uh, that a methane import standard could merely drive existing low emissions methane from around the world into the EU? That is shuffling existing resources around the global market without much climate benefit. Has the new analysis anticipated this issue? So could it be that it just maintains the same amount of clean methane that exists now in the world and just makes all that go to the EU and everything else goes everywhere else? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that's exactly why we want to be thinking about broadening the coalition of, of importers who impose similar intensity standards. Um, I mentioned the U.S. The U.S., of course, is not a huge importer of uh, natural gas, but we do import oil. So it would be great to, to work collaboratively on that. But then broaden the, the coalition to include uh, Japan, South Korea, you know, those countries together with the EU calculations I've seen represent over um, or almost half of, of the imported LNG. So I, I think that the, the way to tackle the problem of, of what the questioner described is called reshuffling, just the idea that, that with an um, import requirement, you, you get the clean stuff directed to the place that has the, the requirement and the dirty stuff goes to places that don't have requirement. The, the best way to address that is really to broaden the set of countries that impose the, the requirement. Brandon, did the report look at this issue? Uh, yes, and I think one of the things that's important um, to think about uh, when we when we consider how oil or gas could be reshuffled is if we're looking at a, a, a country level standard, um, for example, a country level prescriptive standard that would set regulations across the entire industry, um, you know, we would effectively see, uh, uh, you know, the entire domestic production of, of, of oil and gas shift as a response to that. Um, and the similar, similarly for, for an intensity uh, standard as well, um, I think it would be very difficult uh, for uh, com for exporters um, to maybe try and uh, you know create a small uh, a small cave of of, of dirty oil and gas that's created without the same regulations that's exported to the EU um, and uh, you know kind of send the clean gas somewhere else um, that that wouldn't necessarily make sense from a technical perspective either. 
Well, we have two questions next, which are both about coal. I'm going to put these to Michaela. Um, so the first question is from Eleanor Whittle. Although the imports are much smaller than for oil and gas, does the import standard also cover coal? Second question from Maximilian Beck. Do we know the share of methane emissions from coal, gas, and oil, respectively? How much would be achieved with the coal phase-out? Um, so we, do we even need to worry about methane emissions from coal uh, at all, especially given that uh, there's a coal phase-out in mind? Okay. Um, I'm taking the, the second question first because on the first one I'm not no I, I'm not sure I can be the I can be sufficiently sophisticated. So about what I remember is that actually uh, for the EU the the methane, uh, but uh, please others do correct me if I'm wrong. Is as coal roughly is uh, is uh, accounts for the same share as oil and gas. It's spread pretty much over the the three. Uh, the three sources um, and so uh, it's no surprise that uh, the issue of how to tackle coal uh, was also quite vivid debate in the European Parliament uh, besides the, the import standard. Um, what was your first question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> Brandon, do you want to take this? What is the, the difference between coal, oil and gas and do we need to worry about methane emissions from coal? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and and coal is certainly um, an an important uh, an important aspect of this debate. Um, you know, the majority of the EU's uh, emissions that are created within the EU come from the coal sector, so we can by no means exclude that uh, from from the conversation. Um, but the imports of coal are significantly uh, less than the imports of of oil and gas. Uh, we, we we import about ninety percent of our oil and gas. Um, and, and so that, that does come into play uh, a little bit more significantly when we're talking about an import standard and, and what would need to be included in, in an import standard. Okay, great. Um, so the next question is quite a technical one. Um, uh, Catherine, let me see if, if you have the answer to this. I think it's, it's okay if none of you have the answer. Um, the question is from Raeli Kajaste. What is the level of impact for CH4 emissions of LNG transportation, liquid, uh, liquefied natural gas, and the burning of the evaporating CH4 during the transportation? So specifically, LNG moving, what is the, the impact of that for CH4 emissions? Yeah, that's not something I'd, I'd specifically know the answer to, um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't, maybe that some of the other I, panelists. It did look very technical do. to me. Um, Brandon or Michaela, do you happen to know the answer to that? Um, I'm, I don't think I'm in a position to answer that question. Okay, no worries. Yeah, it did, it did seem very technical. Um, it, well, a related question here on LNG, and this question is from Vivek Parekh. Um, I'll put this to uh, Michaela. So uh, the question is, should EU policymakers be questioning corporate interests as the same companies building new LNG terminals and importing LNG are also lobbying to ensure imported fossil fuels are not included in the EU methane regulation? Um, so maybe even to put that more generally, uh, is there something inconsistent here about all the new LNG terminals and infrastructure being built and establishing this standard? 
I've never put the two things together, but it is precisely, and uh, it is precisely because of the, the, but we've seen after the Russian invasion, how much the share of LNG goes up, uh, that this has to be built in from the start. We've seen a new invest, few new investments coming up. Um, and even though we didn't know the precise number, I, I know very well that transporting LNG uh, and then having it, uh, you know, arriving at a port in a terminal, these are, there are all massive, uh, massive opportunities for things to leak. Um, and I would totally concur that, uh, you know, given I've said that already, there's a lot of also public funding going into all of these uh, investments recently, be it from the EU level or the national level, that uh, that it is uh, very justified to, uh, to 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 address this and 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 be strict upon it. Next question is for Brandon. It comes from Cato Sanford. Uh, Brandon already mentioned that CATF had analyzed legality and precedence of a standard. Which methane exporters are likely to be the biggest losers from a new standard, i.e., who might wish to challenge it at the World Trade Organization as protectionist? That's a, that's a great question. Um, and I, I think the important thing to realize when we talk about you know, winners and losers from an import standard, uh, everyone can be a winner uh, if an import standard is implemented and, and countries move towards abating their methane emissions. So I think that's the first thing to underline is that there, there, does, there do not have to be any losers uh, from, this, uh, from, from the implementation of this standard. Um, second, I think, uh, you know, if we look at the implementation of, uh, of, uh, of, of an intensity standard, we can already see right now, uh, you know, just based on the, the data that Lee showed in her initial remarks, um, you know, Norway and Qatar are, are the only two countries that are, are meeting that best practice intensity uh, limit. Uh, when we look at the rules and regulations that are being uh, implemented or, or will soon be implemented, there may be a wider range of countries, uh, you know, ranging from Norway to the U.S. or, or, or Canada that could uh, that could. Uh, could be considered for a derogation or an exemption from from a prescriptive standard. Uh, all of those things, of course, still need to be determined by by, by the methodologies set up by by the Commission later on. Uh, the the countries that have the the the, the worst emission standards and the worst practices uh, right now would most likely uh, potentially face the highest um, the the highest cost. Uh, from the implementation of an import standard, again, if they do not, uh, if they do not abate their emissions, um, so the countries that, that were at the very top of that list, um, from uh, Algeria to uh, or Angola, could potentially uh, consider themselves as the, the ones with the most the most work to do. Um, but I do think another thing that you know that we haven't discussed, and this is also important when we talk about kind of the global perspective of the import standard is, you know, at CATF, we really do think uh, it is important to consider the the, the uh, equity question of how the standard is implemented. And this is something that's come up in some of the CBAM discussions of, you know, who who really should be paying for this, who should really be paying for the emissions, um, reduce, reducing the emissions that the EU is creating. Uh, and one of the ideas that comes up in this report, um, you know, that I think is extremely important is that any kind of revenues that, that may be uh, made from the implementation of this standard 
really should be directed, uh, if possible, back to you know the, the lower uh, and middle income countries that may actually struggle financially uh, to, to implement some of these changes. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very, I would say, uh, fair structure uh, for the EU to really help those lower income countries uh, to uh, actually move towards the implementation of a standard. Because as we said at the beginning, these are emissions that the EU is responsible for, for creating. Um, and so that, that burden necess- shouldn't necessarily fall completely um, on, on, on the lowest income countries um, that may not have the means immediately or the liquidity immediately uh, to, to, to Im- implement some of those standards. Well, I guess one of those losers or, or people who might perceive themselves as losers from this would be LNG uh, exporters. Uh, let's go back to the question about LNG, because Catherine, I think you wanted to come in on this question as well. Yeah, I, I think the question about the European Union expanding its LNG capacity is really important. And the, the expansion of that capacity really plays a key role in making the import standard work. So you can think about the import standard as basically, you know, in terms of, of bargaining. Um, so what you can think about it is the EU saying to exporters, I don't want to take your gas unless it achieves a certain standard. And the ability to kind of hold firm on on that um, commitment is increased the higher the EU's ability is to like to actually enforce that and actually say, no, I, I, I really won't take your gas if it doesn't meet this standard. And so increased LNG capacity gives the European Union that, that bargaining power and, and gives it the ability to say to exporters, look, I've got other options. Um, you know, I can import LNG from, from other suppliers. So you really need to, to meet the, the intensity standard that I'm laying down. Um, so I think the, the questioners, um, the, the premise of the question suggested that it was somehow in conflict with the intensity standard, but I think to the to the contrary, it's it's really um, crucial as as an enforcement mechanism and, and gives the European Union increased bargaining power. So we've had two questions come in about agriculture. Brandon, I'll put these questions to you. First question is from Liam Brennan. Does the panel see any role in this approach for the agriculture sector and food systems? Second question from David Andrew Gauchi. Does the EU also plan to tackle methane emissions from the agricultural sector and waste landfills? Obviously, in this context, we're talking about imports. Um, Brandon, can you walk us through how the import standard would affect agriculture? So the current proposal on the table um, for the methane regulation is limited only to the energy sector. Uh, so the current proposal on the the current proposal for an import standard um, would not address uh, would not address waste uh, or or agriculture. There are other uh, there are other files um, that could potentially move in in that direction. Um, you know, from the industrial emissions directive in the waste sector, we have the the revision of the uh, the, the waste directive and the landfill directive coming up. So it's not to say that there there may not be 
opportunities to tackle methane emissions from other sectors, which are uh, which are extremely important. Um, but the current regulation on the table is limited um, to the energy sector. Uh, and as as uh, as as I think Tomas mentioned in in his remarks, the the energy sector emissions really are the the low hanging fruit of methane emissions. They're the easiest debate. We have the technology, and in many cases, uh, uh, almost half of these emissions are actually uh, free to abate or have negative costs. Um, so I think you know there 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 is a, a certain case to be made for for establishing this standard as a sort of the easiest, the lowest hanging fruit, um, and then moving on to uh, you know very other important sectors such as waste and agriculture. Michaela, is there a prospect of expanding beyond the energy sector for an import standard and expanding to agriculture? That's far down the line, right? Um, I think in agriculture, um, I mean, basically agriculture so far hasn't even had to contribute when it comes to the EU. Uh, on CO2 abatement. Huh? I mean, it's uh, it's pretty much always uh, outside every time something is, 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 you know, is allocated. And the first time maybe it is directly concerned was with the land use target that we have. So we, I think we are really, <laughs> so even when it comes to CO2, we are really a very, um, very much on a different level of the discussion. But um, I think a lot of work is needed. That's what we take here internally uh, also as homework to quickly uh, improve the knowledge of what's going on uh, in the agriculture sector and what could be abated and how. But it, obviously, like my previous speaker said, this is a much more decentralized sector also, which will be will have to be tackled maybe in a much different way than the rather centralized and, as Lee said, in the reduction cost-effective energy sector. But um, let's not forget that basically, you know, uh, energy, agriculture, waste, they all account for the same shares. And, you know, now that we're hitting the a bit the tougher, you know, like, um, how do you say, climate you know our um, climate efforts in europe go a bit now you know now it starts to get really uh, more difficult uh, the power sector has you know has been decarbonized other sectors are more difficult and i think uh, at some point green deal to zero you will have to look at you know at if someone is exempted be it agriculture for co2 or methane the other one has to give so these allocation questions, I think, will come much more to the fore that we're hitting, you know, that we're looking 2030 and beyond. Um, well, let's go back to the LNG topic. It's a hot topic here with the questioners. Catherine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to you for LNG. This question is from Enrico Donda. Um, sticking with the LNG-related topic, don't you think fossil gas extracted by fracking should be banned from EU imports? considering that the fracking boom is tied to a methane spike in the Earth's atmosphere. Would an import standard automatically take that into account, so you wouldn't need an outright ban, or would would an outright ban make sense? Yeah, my understanding is that it, it's not kind of fracking per se, but it's more um, how the, the, the fracking is done and what the practices are. So. I, you know, I, I think we should start with the import standard and really address the the, the methane emissions directly and, and not, um, 
yeah, not not move to the the outright fracking um, ban. I, I, I think the intensity standard actually kind of measures the the thing that you're after, which is the the methane emissions. So let's let's stick to that. Yeah, I suppose if if fracking is causing a large amount of methane emissions, that gets measured by the standard, so that it takes care of itself with the standard, I suppose. Um, okay, we have a final question here uh, from Justice Vesseler. Uh, Brandon, I will put this to you because I think it nicely wraps up the discussion. Um, do we know concretely what the standard might achieve in terms of CO2 emissions and what the economic impacts will be for the EU? That's a great question. Um, in the report, we, we didn't make an analysis for CO2, um, but it is important to mention that methane emissions are much larger compared to those of CO2 uh, for the oil and gas industry. Um, and, and of course, I think it's also important to just remember that methane has a, a much larger climate uh, impact than CO2 when we look at a, the global warming potential over, especially over 20 years, um, but also over 100 years. Um, so I think it's, it is important to, uh, yeah, just to, to underline um, to, to underline that comparison between methane and CO2. Um, and then just, just finally on, on the economic impacts uh, for the EU, um, I think that, you know, this again comes down to the, to the price and availability of, of supply, uh, which is a, a, a very important question that we've touched on earlier. Um, and, you know, if there is uh, increased supply at, at a lower price, that would, of course, result in a more positive um, economic impact. Um, but this is also something uh, that we're that, you know, a question that I think is important to model and requires further uh, further research. Okay, let me get your all of your quick uh, key takeaways before we wrap up here. Catherine, we'll start with you. Um, just in a, based on the discussion we've had today, what do you think is the most compelling argument for uh, an emissions uh, methane emissions standard? I'm going to give you two. Um, I think one, as we've discussed, there are a lot of opportunities to reduce methane emissions in this sector. So let, let's tap into that potential and, and let's see some of those emission reductions. And also, I, I really think this is um, an important kind of pilot. You, you can think of this as a, the international community getting its feet wet and, and really learning how to work together and, and learning um, how to form a, a multilateral agreement. And hopefully what they do in methane could be extended to other um, other arenas and, and, you know, CO2 ultimately, which, which is really the, the big, the big fish. So um, I think this has a lot of potential just to reduce emissions and, and to be a, a pilot or kind of a stepping stone towards a broader agreement. And Michaela, what would be your key takeaway and the, the key argument for having a methane import standard? Well, I think it's just a political moment. We've heard, you know, um, the, the the supply for gas uh, and the, you know, plans for hydrogen and the import. This all has massively shifted after the Russian invasion. So this is a moment also to set the standards for what's to come and where, you know, where it comes from. And then if I might add, I mean, the oil and gas sector in particular has seen record profits over this year. So with any of this, you are actually hitting a sector that can 
well, you know, that can accommodate uh, some more environmental regulation to come in this respect. Great. And finally, Brandon, what would be your quick elevator pitch for why we need a methane import standard? Uh, I think we need to start by, again, just looking at the, the broader framework. We know we're not going to hit any of our climate targets, uh, you know, 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, any degrees, without drastic reductions in our anthropogenic methane emissions. And this is the, the fastest, the, the cheapest, um, and, and really the easiest way to go about doing that. Uh, so we have this massive opportunity on the table with the methane regulation that's putting these rules on, on, on the energy sector for the first time. But we know that if, if the EU is importing 90% of its oil and gas, we're only addressing a, a drop uh, in the ocean, uh, a drop in the bucket of this problem if we're not actually looking at imports as well. Um, so I think there's just a very effective case to be made that if this is legal, this is feasible, um, and we can help really inspire global momentum on methane emissions with an import standard, why, why wouldn't we do it? There's really no reason not to, and we really honestly can't afford not to uh, when we look at the increases in methane emissions. So I would leave it there. Well, that's all the time we have for today's discussion. I want to thank the panelists for some great insights here, some great food for thought as we move forward on this. As we've been talking about, this is live legislation working its way through the institutions here in Brussels. So we'll see if a methane import standard can survive the legislative process and in what form it might end up in. Uh, and how, especially I think we've touched upon today, how that enforcement mechanism, what that might look like. Uh, so thank you all for spending your morning with us. I wish you a great rest of your day and we'll see you right here for the next debate from the, your active studios. Take care. <laughs>